Well, as you know, it's the second Sunday of the Advent season, and as is uh, tradition, uh, the next two Sundays bring this person uh, that we know as John the Baptist to the center of the story. John the Baptist is not uh, a denomination. Uh, He is not a a split from some other church group. Uh, Rather, this is sort of a nickname. He had been well known in the region for baptizing people with his own hands, which wasn't common at all. And uh, so he got the nickname as the Immerser or the Dipper. That's kind of a cool name, right? John the Dipper. But down south, that means something different. So, Although he is from the southern kingdom of Judah, so maybe he did dip. So, all right. We're just we're on all cylinders here this morning. Um, now, before we move into the text, just a few things. Man, people just coming in. Let's all say hello to the Lanes. Good morning, Lanes. Yeah. So we actually know a lot about John, and I don't mean just from the Bible, but we know a lot about John outside of the Bible. He was very, very well uh, known in his time, and he had many, many disciples. Many of those disciples became Jesus' disciples. There's a great scene in Luke chapter 11 where the disciples watch Jesus pray, and when he's done, they tap him on the shoulder and say, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. He was rather far-reaching in his spiritual influence, for sure. We know that people were his disciples even long after his death. You can be a disciple of an idea, of a teacher's ways. You can be the disciple of a philosophy of, of which the founder may be dead. It's, it's possible to do that. Uh, John was also a bit of a socio-political instigator, disruptor kind of person. Uh, got him in trouble quite a few times. It's, if John the Baptist had had a Twitter account, he would have just been that, that troll, you know. Whatever Herod did or said, we would hear about it. And Herod, Antipas, had him killed. Uh, we know this not just from the Bible, but from other documents in and around that time period. And the reason he had him killed, because, again, John the Baptist in his giant mouth felt like he needed to criticize the Herod for his marriage practices. And so John the Baptist just felt like he had to say something about it, and it got him in trouble with the powers that be, and eventually Herod had him killed. This is the same, uh, not the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus. That's this man's father. So the Herodians have a nice short fuse for the Galilean Jews who have things to say. Jesus said of him, and this is just an interesting thing that Jesus would say, but he said, among those born of women, as far as we know with science, that's everyone, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so with two Sundays dedicated to him, John the Baptist is truly the voice of the Advent season. He is the language of this season. But why? Why do we devote so much time to this person? What does he have to do with Advent? Well, today we're just going to look at the setting of John's life, and then next week we pick up uh, with the, the rest of the story and hear some of his teachings. But it has to do with this word, hope. Uh, If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 6, we have it here uh, on the screen behind me. Uh, It's in our app. If you want it, I'm going to read from it, or you can just listen. I mean, we're hitting you with all the available options here. But Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll break this down. Uh, Luke begins, in the 15th year 
of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Troconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, not Texas, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this uh, morning, and thank you for uh, this place that we can come and meet together each Sunday and uh, sing songs uh, about you and to you, of course, in prayer, uh, to open your word and listen to it and reflect on it. Teach us something new today. Refresh our hearts of things that we have forgotten and need to be reminded of. And it's in your name we pray and everyone said, amen. So, Luke is a master reteller of stories, definitely gaining our interest with this uh, political introduction of people and the places that they ruled in. I mean, it's so exciting, isn't it? Luke, I love it when you speak geographical uh, politics to me. But this is what Luke kind of always does in his writings. Before he tells a story, he likes to take the story that he's about to tell and place it in real-time history. He wants us to know like, when this is happening, what is happening at that time. And of course, people in and around the very earliest readers and listeners of the story, this brings up all kinds of memories or experiences or whatever. Uh, you could say it like this, in fact, just to sort of help it make sense. Uh, I've rewritten it with Luke's permission. In the 15th year of the reign of Donald Trump, that's a long time, by the way, Nathan Deal being the governor of Georgia, Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, and John Lewis, the tetrarch of the 5th district. But don't forget Hank Johnson, the tetrarch of the 4th district. During the high priesthood of Pope Francis, the word of the Lord came to John way out there in Winder, Georgia. (laughs) You got it? Now, when I read those names, like, you live here. You should start, that should start making some like, okay, okay, I got it. I know where we're going. I know what kind of world that we're living in. So Luke is just saying, this is the story I want to tell you. And this story happened at this time. But there's always a story beneath the story in the Bible. And what Luke does so often is he he lays in place power structures of the day as a way of showing the reader how God's particular workings in history happened so often in the most unexpected places. Not from power centers of the world, but from places like the outback, places like the wilderness, and through people like John. So from Rome to the wilderness, that's essentially that listing. We begin with the Caesar, we end up with some local congressmen, and then we're out in the desert with this weirdo named John. So from Rome to the wilderness, the list goes in the wrong direction if you're looking for influence and power. 
It's a declining state of affairs. And the levels of influence weaken with each successive location until we arrive in the wilderness, essentially at the edge of nothingness. There's nothing there. Well, on the page, uh, the wilderness was a very literal place. This is a picture that uh, John the Baptist took while he lived there. (laughs) But the Judean wilderness, as you can see, was not an easy thing to pass through. The location was rough. And the wilderness was always a place for uh, wanderers and the lonely and outcasts and, of course, the criminal. Like no one in Jerusalem ever said to their spouse, you know what, honey, what do you say a place in the wilderness, just us and the kids? <laughs> the wilderness is a rough place. And in the biblical storyline, the wilderness was also a state of being, almost like a condition It's never initially seen as a good place. Nowhere in the Bible do you read the word wilderness and it's followed with like a great story of joy and peace. It's always a place, just word study it yourself and you'll find that it's always a place of struggle. It's a place of resistance. It's a place of fear, a place of doubt. It's a place where faith is tested. That's the wilderness in the Bible. Have you been there before? Let me just read those descriptions again. Struggle, place of resistance, fear, doubt, where your faith has been tested. Anybody? We've all been in the wilderness. And when the writers of the Bible place the stories in the wilderness, we know that something difficult is happening. And we know that its characters will undergo hardships and transformative experiences, and it will not be easy or desirable. It's a place in life where you're just hoping for a way out. And we've all been there. Every one of us can point to different wilderness experiences in our lives. Every one of us can recall seasons we desperately wanted to get out of. Whether it's a season of depression or a season of just anger, just angry all the time. Uh, where you feel like a failure because maybe you have failed. Maybe there's something has happened in your life where it's, you look at it and you say, That's, I failed there, and I feel like a failure. We live in a world, by the way, where failure is becoming less and less an option. The church has to be better at this. We have to be much better at this. To be a place where We can all come when there has been failure in our lives. Amen? Or maybe it's just a season or a wilderness for you of fear. Just constant fear. Fear of your job, fear of your parenting, fear of your relationships, fear of everything. You're just afraid. You're afraid for your health. You're afraid for um, just life in general. Fear is crippling. Fear is... Is scary. Fear and scary go together, but fear is very scary. It's paralyzing. So we've all been there. And it's in those, it's quiet in those places too. I don't know if you are self aware when you're in those places, but it's very quiet. It's very, it's a season of waiting. It's a place where it's very difficult to move. And the wilderness is a place of waiting. 
And we are in our culture doing everything we can to eliminate waiting for anything. We're working hard on it. Like, just, I mean, there'll come a day, my friends, where like, you think, gosh, I need eggs. And you go home and wow, they're at the door. That was amazing. And your phone's like, gotcha, gotcha. But one of the things that you will see if you run through the Bible at all is that waiting and patience is a very key component, not just to growing in your faith, but in deep relationships with anyone. You know? Wouldn't you be scared if you went on a first date and you got the text back, I think I'm in love with you. That's kind of weird. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Takes time. I need a couple more dates before I hear something like that, you know? But waiting is just, that's how things relationally grow, is patience. And wilderness is a place of waiting. It's, it's a Sabbath from everyday hustle and bustle. It's just you and your problems. It's just you and your problems. And John the Baptist... Uh, coming back into his story, would become the voice to announce to the coming world uh, the coming work of Jesus. And he didn't hold a seat of power in the places of power, but he lived essentially off the grid outside the city where it was rough and lonely. And Luke takes us past all of these places and all of these people who probably bathed to get to this one man living in a lonely place to say, here, here is where the word of the Lord speaks. Now, to be clear, the powerful were and are used by God. They are. That's not the point of the story. Jesus, in fact, surrounded himself with people of means and influence, not just teenage fishermen leaving the job. The problem is that the powerful, and this includes all of us in the room, by the way, the problem is the powerful expect not to be passed by. We expect to be included in whatever it is that's going on. But people in the wilderness don't expect anything. And Luke is showing us that God is among those way downstream as well, among the lost and the broken. God is a wilderness kind of God. And John speaks the words of the prophet Isaiah, and uh, he says this voice of the wilderness, crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his way straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. The prophet is saying all the things that add hardship to your life, they cannot ban God from you. He will find a way. It's very interesting. We always think prepare the way of the Lord means uh, get your life together so that God can come to you. But the prophet speaks a very interesting word. It says prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. And then in the very next run of sentences here, it's the Lord who is making the path straight. It's the Lord who is uh, lowering mountains and straightening out crooked paths, making rough places smooth and level. It's the Lord who's doing that. I love that. That is the gospel. 
The grace and the mercy of God is coming to you whether you want it to or not. So why not be prepared for that? Prepare the way of the Lord is kind of a warning. Love and grace and mercy is coming your way. Redemption is coming your way. Be ready for that. Oh yes, but the Lord can't get to me. Look at all these things that are barriers between me and God. That's what the prophet is saying. God has that. He is making all of those things low and straight and smooth. And Luke is showing us here that, uh, that John resembles that. He is the voice of that. He is a voice of hope. That's the voice in the wilderness. A voice of healing and rescue and hope. Someone is calling out to you. In whatever wilderness you are in, I always think this is good advice. Uh, someone, God is calling out to you in some way. It may be through a friend or a community of people. Um, it, 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 who knows? But you must know that someone is calling out to you. As many of you know, uh, we're trying to buy a building. And as many of you know, that's easy. Uh, and as many of you know, the market right now is just so good. Not for us, but for the people selling. And it doesn't matter what we look at. I mean, it could, it could be a crack house. And it's like, that's how much you want for this. You know? I literally haggled with a person recently and said, that's interesting. You want this for this, and you're in this, quote, neighborhood, but we just looked at a similar building, almost twice the size, in Buckhead for cheaper. Not that we could do the Buckhead one either. I was just pretty much ruining the deal either way. <laughs> and I'm not like a real, I mean, I don't know. I bought, I've bought two things in my life to live in. The house we had in McDonough, we sold that and made 500 bucks on it. So you can see I'm good at that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I bought our condo, like here in uh, the city. And that was like a one-time walkthrough. We walked in and we were like, Good, I kicked the hubcaps on the wall. It was great. We'll take it. We'll take it. And we've been there almost 12 years. I'm not good at that. But buying a church building has just been, I don't know. And there's the added pressure of, like, you guys have given a lot of money for this, and I don't want to, like, ruin that, you know? I don't want you to come on the first day and be like, this? This is what I paid for? You know? So it's been, it's been stressful to, do, to think, you know, you know me. I don't even talk about money, so just much less that you've given it to us is scary. Um, and this building has ruined almost everything for us because we love this space. And so we go into a place and we're like, really, you're giving us drywall? That's what you're giving? No. No. Where's the wood? Where's the 100-year-old brick? Where's the, you know, where's the big windows? You know? and, and Max, who's our realtor who owns this building, is like, no, listen, they don't all look like this. You know? But anyway, I mean, it's just been one of those things. And... Um, but I emailed 30 people that you don't know. People in ministry, people in other states, people in just my life. They don't go here. They don't have any connection here. I mean, they know about you, but they don't know you and you don't know them. And I emailed them and I just said, listen, I need you to pray for several things. And then I just listed them out. Because I'm basically just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I just emailed 30 people. And I just said, listen, I just need you to uh, pray for us, pray for me, and uh, pray for this whole situation. And the response has been more than encouraging. I knew that I would get that. That's part of why I did that. 
But, um, but the other reason I did that was because it feels like a little bit of a wilderness thing and no one's talking, you know? I don't expect you to talk. You're just like, tell us when and where. But no one, I just, you feel weird. And so I just, I need some voices. So sometimes it's not just uh, the existential, someone is calling your name, someone's calling out for you in the wilderness. Sometimes you have to knock on doors and say, speak to me. Someone speak to me. Speak to me things that I'm not thinking about. Pray about this and tell me what you say. Tell me what you're hearing. Sometimes the wilderness is a place where we have to intentionally find the voice that will encourage us. And part of why we light the candles every Advent, uh, one by one, week after week. Last week we talked about how the candle puts darkness on notice. That was the, that was the thing. But this week it's about hope. This week is that we light a candle to represent the hope of the world in Christ, but also the hope in those times when we are in wilderness seasons, that we can feel God's presence through the lives and the words of others, but also just knowing that he is there. Amen.